0: The church's vocation in this world is in large parts what the Apostle Paul called the work of ministry. The work of ministry. As we continue to think about this work of ministry, having begun last week, as we continue to think about this work of ministry, um, building on that foundation of Jesus when He called His first disciples in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, building on that, the question for us this morning is fairly straightforward. After calling them, by what methods and means did Jesus turn those fishermen into fishers of men? Let me say that again. The question before us this morning is fairly straightforward. By what methods and means did Jesus turn those fishermen into fishers of men? This is, this is foundationally important to us, isn't it? We're asking questions about the work of Christ, the work of ministry. We want to understand that now for our day uh, as well. Did he, we might ask, did he try to organize as many large-scale training events as he could all over the Roman world? And then once there, pass along a seven-step method to as many people as he could? Was that his approach? Did he establish a training institute in hustling, bustling Jerusalem? A training institute through which people could earn that fishing for men degree, right? fmd or i don't know what it would be a bs and a bs and f fishing for fm i don't know what it would be did he do that maybe he just gave a scroll right he composed a scroll and he gave them a scroll containing all of his key principles all of his key practices for kingdom life then he encouraged them to master that content and pass that scroll along to somebody else was that his approach Just how did Jesus actually take fishermen and make them fishers of men? Or to use language from the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, how did Jesus make disciples who would themselves make disciples? How did he do that? Keep that question in mind. Let's return to Mark's gospel. This time we're in chapter 3, as I mentioned before. We'll be looking in, we'll be zeroing in on verses 13 through 15. So after a couple chapters worth of details, we're moving from chapter 1 to chapter 3, after a couple chapters worth of details about Jesus' ministry of preaching, His ministry of healing and casting out demons, this is what we read in verse 13 about Jesus and the group that was following Him. Verse 13, And He went up on the mountain and He called to Him those whom He desired And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. Now, the first thing I hope that you'll notice here is the same pattern is present from the calling of Mark chapter one. Lordship, discipleship, and partnership. Do you see that? That same pattern is there. Lordship, discipleship, and partnership. First of all, the Lord Jesus issues another calling to a select group, 12 men to be exact, from among all His disciples. There's plenty of clues in this context, and even from the sense of it here, that He had to call specific specifically 12 men from another group that was following him. And there's clues other places, like I said, that we'll see that there was a a larger group that was following him, a larger group of disciples. So he calls 12 out, right? The Lord Jesus does this. And what does he do? He appoints them as apostles. Take that little word P-O-S-T, post in there. Apostles. Take that word post and think about the idea of something being sent, like at the post office. That idea of sending is what is essential to this word apostles. But more so than that, these who are sent, those who are sent, they are sent as authorized delegates. They're authorized by the Lord. They are official messengers. Again, all of this is pointing back to the identity of Jesus. He is the Lord Jesus. He calls, he selects, he appoints these official, these authorized delegates known as apostles. Second, these men are appointed to be with Jesus. Remember that second idea of discipleship, lordship, discipleship. These men are appointed to be with Jesus. Now, many people were with Jesus. Some were spectators that followed him around. Some were followers Many people were with Jesus throughout his ministry, so this with must mean something else. And that's an issue we'll just revisit in a moment here. Third, these men are also appointed so that Jesus, verse 14, might send them out to preach and to heal. That is to do the very same things he's been doing up to this point in Mark. Now, were these the only guys who were sent out? No, we know from the Gospel of Luke that there were also at least 72 others who were sent out to do this same exact work. So this is just not apostolic work. There are 72 others who did this and we can find traces of of other indications where the disciples, other disciples, are ministering to others. So again, the pattern is here. Lordship, discipleship, and partnership. Now... Though these men are appointed right here in chapter 3, in this gospel account, in Mark's gospel, they are not actually sent out until Mark chapter 6. That's interesting, isn't it? They're appointed here in Mark chapter 3. They're not sent out until Mark chapter 6, verse 7. So remember that invitation from Mark one we We'll put it on the screen here for you. Remember the invitation. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Remember that call. Follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. So think about this. If Mark chapter 6, verse 7 is a clear place in the gospel where we actually see these fishermen fishing for men, then one of the things that we could do is we could look between 117 and 6-7 and say, what was Jesus doing with them between those points? The fishermen of 117 who left their nets, left their boats, left their father, and followed him, how were they prepared for the sending out in chapter 6, verse 7? What takes place in between those two points? So our main question about how Jesus made them become fishers of men, we can answer that, by, let me suggest this. Let me suggest that we look at two aspects of the kingdom work that we find in this context between 117 and 6.7. Two aspects in which Jesus himself engaged. Take a look here on the screen. First of all, let's think about where the work of ministry takes place. And second, let's think about how this work of ministry takes place. With eyes on Jesus... Let's watch and see where does the work of ministry take place and how does this work of ministry take place. So first, what does Mark tell us about where this took place in terms of Jesus' ministry? Well, let me give you three contexts, okay? The first context that's obvious from this gospel, and you know this if you just casually even read the gospel, the first context that's obvious from this gospel is a large circle of public ministry, Think of it as a circle, right? A big circle. This is his public ministry. Again, if we just narrow the search range between 117, chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 6, verse 7, Mark mentions Jesus ministering among the crowds 15 times. Just in those verses, 15 times. He's also teaching in that context. He's healing in that context. He's casting out demons in that context. He's also described as teaching and healing in the synagogue on a regular basis. In the synagogue. Now you can go today and you can walk through, I believe, the remains of the synagogue in Capernaum. It's been uncovered. You can walk in that space where Jesus would have often taught in the synagogue. Chapter 1, verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 39. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 2. These are these larger circles in which Jesus Christ was ministering, carrying out the work of ministry. But our main text is a good example of how Jesus was also shrinking his focus to a not as large context. He's shrinking his focus to more of a mid-sized circle of which these 12 men were a part you see, not only were new disciples drawn from that larger circle of public ministry. People would hear the message of the kingdom. They would see Jesus working miracles and they would want to follow. They would want to, they would want to learn more about Jesus. They would want to listen and find out and discover more about what He was declaring to them about this new life in the kingdom, about the love of God, about forgiveness from God. New disciples would be drawn in through that larger circle, that larger circle of public ministry. But not only were they drawn in new disciples, but oftentimes this not as large group, this mid-sized circle of ministry was also instructed through that crowd or synagogue ministry. Like these 12 guys, they would listen to what he was teaching. The Sermon on the Mount's a perfect example of this. We know there were many, many, many people listening to the Sermon on the Mount. But it says that he sat down among the crowds and he turned to his disciples and said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, or whatever the first one is. I'm forgetting what it is. But he began those, what we call beatitudes, right? Looking at his disciples, but he's there in the midst of the crowd. So we see the kind of connection between these kinds of circles. But look with me at chapter 4, verse 10. It may be across the page for you. You may have to flip a page. You may have to scroll down just a tad to see in chapter four, four, sorry, chapter four, verse 10, chapter four, verse 10, that verse reveals what it reveals here about his instruction. It says that when he was alone, when Jesus was alone, well, we know if we go on to read he's not alone. What does that alone mean? It means that when he was not with the crowd, he wasn't in that public setting anymore. Those around him with the twelve, there's one of those clues that his group of disciples was larger. Those around him with the twelve, what did they do? It says that they asked him about the parables he was teaching in the larger circle. So when they're there with him away from the crowd, they're asking him about what's happened, what was happening in the larger circle. So in addition to the others mentioned here with the 12, notice there's a new layer of instruction taking place. This smaller mid-sized kind of group. Finally, we could say in terms of where this work took place, now let me mention something about the second size, that mid-sized group. So much of the Gospels, I think you know, When you read through the Gospels, so much of the Gospels takes place with that mid-sized group. So much of what you read there, really the majority of what you're reading with Jesus, are those things taking place in that kind of medium-sized circle of people that were around Jesus. But, finally, in terms of where this work took place, there are clues in this section... Even in our main context here, our main verses, chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, that Jesus also regularly ministered to an even smaller circle. Now, where are the clues in our main text here? Well, notice this. Notice that only three of these men, if you drop down to verse 16 in chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, do you see what you find there in 16 through 19? You find a list of the twelve, the names of the twelve apostles, right? Those who were, men who were appointed as apostles. Now notice in that list that, that, notice who here is given nicknames by Jesus. Verse 16, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Banerges. That is, Sons of Thunder in Aramaic. Banner Now, notice that. Of all the names listed there, there are three to whom Jesus gave nicknames. And three of those are three of the four that He called as who were the fishermen from chapter 1, right? Now, that may be nothing more than just a curiosity until you read in chapter 5, verse 37... That when he went to raise up the dead daughter of the synagogue leader Jairus, it says this, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. That's it. Now you might think, okay, that's a coincidence, but no. In chapter nine, only those three men will witness the transfiguration of Christ. Oh, wait a minute. We've got a little bit of a pattern here. Yeah, because in chapter 14, verse 33, only these three men are taken deeper into Gethsemane to pray nearest to Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. When you get to the book of Acts, although the 11 are listed with a new apostle, Matthias, in chapter 1 of the book, After chapter 1, the only three apostolic names you hear of the 12 again are Peter, James, and John. That's it. You never hear again ever about the other apostles. Of the 12, the original ones. Of course, we know Paul shows up as an apostle appointed such by the risen Lord Jesus. But this is that smaller circle that Jesus seemed to be working with from among that medium-sized group, you know, this is where we see that kind of evidence of that. Okay, so 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 so, why might it be important to point out those different contexts? How could that be helpful to us? Why is that even critical? Why is that important, these circles? Well, I think uh, we can answer that by second, thinking through what Mark tells us about how the work of ministry took place. We talked a little bit about evidence of where the work of ministry was taking place in Jesus' ministry, right? But how did that work actually take place? As I mentioned, unsurprisingly, we regularly read in this section that Jesus was preaching and teaching wherever he went. He was preaching and teaching wherever he went. And, and we, we need to emphasize this. Some people will say, look at all the miracles Jesus was doing. We should do those miracles today, Once you understand the the flow of scripture, you understand that the miracles were always testifying to the word that was preached. They were always pointing back to the identity of Jesus and the validity of what he was saying. Even in the book of Acts, it says that signs and wonders were being performed through the apostles' hands that would bear witness to the word they were preaching. So, and Jesus said, let's leave this place. I want to go and teach and preach to more villages. That's why I've come I've come to do that, to teach and preach about the kingdom of God. So that is central to what's happening here. Of course, teaching is always central to the work of making or training disciples, right? (laughs) Just when you use the word teacher and disciple, you're automatically thinking about this kind of instruction. So this is not surprising that we see Jesus preaching and teaching. But the statement from chapter 4, verse 10 that you looked at with me, It highlights the difference between His public and His private instruction. And and if you look back over to chapter 4, or maybe you're still there, and drop down to verse 34, 4.34 confirms the very thing that I'm saying. It says this in summary, He did not speak to them. Who is that? The crowd. He did not speak to the crowd without a parable, but privately to his own disciples in that not as large circle, he explained everything. Do you see the difference there between the larger circle and that kind of not as large circle? What's taking place differently in terms of ministry here by Jesus? He's able to actually explain and go, go into more depth with this smaller group, so again he was shrinking his focus, but why was he doing that? Why was he doing that? Well, remember that small phrase from our main texts in in Mark chapter three verses thirteen through fifteen. Remember that small phrase from specifically verse fourteen of chapter three: These twelve men were appointed. So that they might be with Him. So that they might be with Him. Like the apprentice of a plumber or electrician. Like he or she understands. There is only so much you can learn from a book or a training video. Does that make sense? I think we know that. There is only so much that you can learn in that way. Such apprentices must learn that work as that work is being done. We know this. As that work is being done in the field, as they are with, as they are with the skilled and experienced technician who's training them. These disciples Learn the work of ministry as they walked with Jesus and as they watched Jesus doing the work of ministry. And then, as our main text sets up, they were actually involved in the work of ministry. Jesus involved them in the work of ministry under His own supervision. And when they came back from that mission that they were on in chapter 6, they could debrief with Jesus. Right? This gospel doesn't record it, but later another gospel says, uh, Lord, Lord, and they came back. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, whoa, settle down, settle down. I know that's cool, but you know what's cooler? That your names are written in heaven. That's what's more wonderful. Do you understand? That's what's more wonderful of what it means about where your ministry, what it means about how you've connected with the king, how you are In the kingdom, how you are doing the work of the kingdom. So we see all of that taking place here as they are with Him. As they are with Him. Think about these ideas, these same ideas, as you listen to these well-known words of Jesus from yet another of the Gospels. Take a look on the screen. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are what? My disciples. They'll know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, think about What that commandment assumes. What does it assume when Jesus gives them a commandment? It assumes that these men could demonstrate their discipleship to Jesus through Christ-like love because they spent over three years experiencing on a daily basis the ways He loved them. You can't get that from a book. You can't get that from a training video. They experience day in and day out how Christ loved them. How He modeled love to them. They could hear it in His words. They could see it in His actions. They knew what it would mean to follow His example in this way. Yes, the washing of the feet had just taken place, but that wasn't the only time that He had loved them. That was simply a a powerful reminder of all the ways that He had loved them. They thought maybe culminating in that. They didn't know yet that it would culminate later on that cross. That's where that love would culminate. But these men... Knew what it would mean to follow His example in this way. In light of our context, those verses from John confirm this. They confirm the highly relational nature of the process by which Jesus took fishermen and turned them into fishers of men. Highly relational process. Not highly academic. Not highly programmatic. Not highly conceptual or expedited or even skills based. Highly relational. Highly relational. A process that required an invest an investment of time, an investment of one's heart. Jesus spelled out the truth for them, but he also lived out the truth among them on a daily basis. As the apostle Paul would later express this very same heart, he said this. Take a look on the screen here. First Thessalonians 2 8. Being affectionately desirous of you, says Paul, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. That's the investment. That's the giving. Disciple of Jesus, are you taking notes? Disciple of Jesus, are you hearing? Disciple of Jesus. Are you seeing the example of our Master? Do you see why the ministry circles had to get smaller? The relational aspect of discipleship can only go deeper as the ministry context gets smaller. Let me say that again. The relational aspect of discipleship can only get deeper as the ministry context gets smaller. So where and how did this work of ministry take place? Here's a simple summary statement. It took place in different sized circles, circles that ultimately served the relational nature of discipleship. It took place in different sized circles that ultimately served the relational nature of discipleship. So, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for you? Well, if you believe the Christian life begins with the call of Christ on your life. If you believe it begins with the call of Christ on your life. That call concerning lordship, discipleship, and partnership. The very ideas that we explored in the last message. And if you have responded to that call of Christ on your life in faith, then you should be eager to be trained. You should be eager to be discipled in this same way. Why? So that you too can become like Jesus. So that you too can participate in the fishing work, in the kingdom work of loving others like Christ. That's why they were with Him. Why use the same approach as Jesus? Because we are disciples of Jesus. We don't take our cues from Madison Avenue. We don't take our cues from Hollywood. We don't take our cues from Washington, D.C. We don't take our cues from the corporate offices in downtown Phoenix. We are disciples of Jesus. Jesus we want to become like him he has passed the baton to us think about this what would have come to mind for those first disciples when they heard on the mountain the commissioning of Matthew 28:19 take a look on the screen go and make disciples. That's what Jesus, how he commissioned them. What would they have thought of when they heard those words? How could they not think of the way Jesus had made disciples of them? How would they even fill out that, fill out that phrase, make disciples? Make Well, Jesus, are you going to give us some, come on, Jesus, give us a little layout here of how, what's the process, what's the steps to make disciples? They didn't need that because they had just lived it. He had made disciples of them and so they understood that. He knew that they knew that though we recognize today there are important differences between their discipleship to Jesus and our discipleship to Jesus, between what He accomplished and what we can accomplish, we recognize that. Shouldn't we still strive to carry out the work of ministry as a way of grace church according to His principles, according to His example with those first disciples? We should, absolutely. Absolutely. So I challenge you to first ask this question of yourself. Am I, today, being conformed to Jesus and prepared by Jesus in the same kinds of diverse and relational circles as those first disciples? Is that how you're being discipled? Is that how you're being conformed to and prepared by Jesus for the work of ministry. The second question to ask yourself is this, am I today seeking to partner with Jesus because of the call of Christ in my life, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, uh, love your neighbor as yourself? And when there's other calls that we could grab onto and they all kind of point in the same direction, am I today seeking to partner with Jesus in the work of ministry In those very same circles. Am I doing that? Are you doing that? Are we as disciples doing this? You see, in all of this, asking these kinds of questions, there's so much to think about, process, kind of wrestle with, to ask more questions. But in all of this, we should not and we cannot drift from that powerful and that precious tiny phrase in chapter 3, verse 14. It said, so that they might be with Him. So that they might be with Him. Brother, sister, doesn't this apply to us as well? Doesn't this apply to us as well? Yeah, no, I know none of us are able to actually go back in time. We weren't the ones invited to physically approach Jesus on that hill or mountain when he appointed those men as apostles. I get that though we are no longer able to physically travel with him, to be in spatial proximity to him, though we are no longer able to witness his kingdom work, to hear his kingdom message with these eyes and these ears, Jesus Christ did something stunning. He did something staggering for his people so that they might be with him. That he might be with you. I love the way Paul summed it up. Take a look on the screen. This is again to the Thessalonians. He said, for God has not destined us for wrath. We could stop there and it would be, have a party, right? Wouldn't that be beautiful? For God has not destined us for wrath, but to do what? To obtain salvation, deliverance, rescue through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, alive he, alive in the world or d- dead in the world, we've died. Whether we are either one of those, we might live with Him, with Him. First Thessalonians five nine and ten. Did you hear the gospel in those verses? We're not destined for wrath. Christ died for us why so that we could be with him with him and that with him you know is far more is far better than just the with him of mark chapter 3 now that mark chapter 3 with him with those 12 men it was leading to this with him wasn't it it was growing into this with him but that with him was just that rabbi disciple relationship uh, in even in that kind of closer circle But remember, not even the twelve had, it was the three that really had more of kind of the intense time. We're learning so much from Jesus and the way that He approached those things, the way that He did those things. But it was leading to this with Him because it was leading to the cross and the empty tomb. And Christ died that we might be with Him. Well, Pastor Bryce, those verses you're giving us are pointing to the future. They're right. You are. You're right. They are pointing to the future. What about today? Well, just as Jesus reassured those first disciples in light of the cross, in light of the empty tomb, He also reassures every disciple who gives himself or herself to the work of ministry. How does He do that? Just go back to Matthew 28. Let's cling to those final words in Matthew 28. This is what it says. He says, and behold, I am with you. I am with you. Yeah, it started with the 12 that they might be with him. But it culminates with us, the church That I might be with you. I will be with you. Always. To the end of the age. Nothing can change that. Nothing can take Him away from us. He is always with His people. Most apprenticeships, right? Most apprenticeships end with a knowledge and or skills transfer. I've learned what I need to do. I can do now what the one teaching me is doing. Cut me loose. I'm ready to go do it on my own. The wonderful, the glorious thing about Christian discipleship is that we must never forget that the lordship, the discipleship, the partnership that we've talked about, that we've studied, are not ultimately about the work of ministry. They are about the one who works in our ministry. That's what it's all about him. And we're never cut loose. Wonderfully, we're never cut loose from Jesus. It's not about a knowledge and skills transfer. Oh, absolutely. We want to grow to become more like Christ, don't we? But we never want to be cut loose from him. He's always leading us. We're always growing as his students. We're always learning from him how to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we do that best by fulfilling the work, by bringing the most glory to God and loving people best by bringing the gospel to them, by discipling them and growing them up in the very thing, the baton that was passed from Him to us. The whole goal of this work of ministry is Jesus Christ. The whole goal is simply to be with Him. And we want more and more people with Him. Don't we? We want to help each other grow In being with Him and experiencing that more fully. So let's pray this morning. Let's pray in light of His calling. Let's pray in light of His example to us. And let's pray with the reassurance that He gave us. I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Would you pray with me?